Hi there, friend. My name is John Werner. I used to be a part of the largest cult in the United States. After studying the Bible, Christian history, and ministry, I set my sights on confronting the problematic nature of white evangelicalism in the United States. In 2019, I published my first book as a first step in addressing the subtle issues of this complex system. This podcast will continue that work under the same title. Welcome to The Cult of Christianity. Content warning. While the cult of Christianity often deals with tough subjects regarding religious trauma and other triggering topics, some episodes may be more explicit than others. This episode contains content that may be distressing to some listeners. This may include multiple mentions of self-harm, suicide, sexual abuse, or other intense concepts. Please only listen if you are in the headspace to do so. Take care of yourself. On today's show, we have a guest I'm very excited about. Very glad he agreed to come on. Uh, I'll uh, I'll actually, since I don't know him too well, let him introduce himself. Uh, Lucas, do you mind just telling people a little bit about um, who you are, what you do, and uh, where you came from? Yeah, so maybe in the reverse order, I I come from Toronto, Ontario, Canada, where I live now. But I spent, you know, a decent amount of my adulthood in the U.S., about nine and a half years in the American South. I am a Ph.D. candidate at Florida Atlantic University. I study literature and religious studies, and I uh, am no longer in residence at uh, FAU. I instead now live again back in Toronto, Um, and I teach at University of Toronto, and I am... uh, uh, someone who talks about and writes about my experiences largely in conversion therapy. Uh, I went through conversion therapy at Liberty University in Lynchburg, Virginia for four years during my undergrad there. And that's uh, by and large, I, I mean, there's a lot more to me, I suppose, but <laughs> that's, I think, what we're talking about today. So uh, that's what I'll, I'll, I'll say. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for uh, obviously. There's, I'm sure, a lot more about you. I'd love to know your hobbies and all that. But you know, I try to keep these podcasts less than five hours, and so it takes a while to get to know someone thoroughly. Um, let's start here, though. How did you relate to Christianity the first 18 years of your life? Oof. Well, uh, I was raised in a family that can best be described not as religious, but I suppose. My mom, she was haunted by her Baptist demons. She grew up Baptist. And, you know, when she raised us, I'm the youngest of five. When she raised us, she took us to church up until when I was about in grade two or three. And after that, we stopped going to church. We instead just kept going to the cottage, which is our, you know, (laughs) our second home here uh, in Ontario. And I... Yeah, I think that for me, I had exposure to church. I had exposure to Christianity. You know, my mom had taught me my prayers and how to say grace, but that was pretty much the extent within the home. And then when we'd go to church, we'd, you know, I'd go to Sunday school and then Sunday service and all that kind of stuff um, up until, again, about grade two or three. And so I had some exposure, but it certainly wasn't anything 
that was all that robust. Um, you know, after we left church on Sundays, we'd come home and shut the hell up about it. <laughs> we didn't talk about what, uh, you know, we talked what we learned at, at Sunday school or in church. Um, my dad was agnostic at best. Um, and he was not someone who really cared, you know, about faith or, or, uh, religion in a lot of ways, or maybe organized religion more accurately. And so I was very much, again, just exposed to Christianity and thought about it, I suppose, when I was young. Um, but it wasn't until grade eight or nine, well, the summer between grade eight and nine, I should say, that my brother Quinn, he got really into creation versus evolution. And he was like, Luke, you got to watch these DVDs with me. He had bought a bunch of DVDs from Kent Hoven this creationist down in Pensacola, Florida, who eventually went to jail because he said that the money he owed the government was God's money, but apparently the government disagreed with him on that one. Um, <laughs> Ken Hoven, <laughs> uh, he had all these DVDs, so it was my brother and I watched them, and I, he, after the first one, I was, I said, in the beginning, I was like not so excited to watch you know, a DVD on creation versus evolution, but he had convinced me, and I did, and so we watched it, and I was like, you know what, this is actually um, engaging, and, and my grade eight slash nine-year-old brain uh, decided that I wanted to watch more and, and learn more. And so I started exploring the weird world of creationism. And as a result of that, I decided that if in fact I believed that there was a God that or an intelligent designer, I needed to figure out who that God was. And so, you know, at the time, what I thought was logical was going to the church that I, I had grown up in. So I went to the church um, and I went to youth group first or first I went to church, then I went to youth group. And then I actually went, you know, with, you know, uh, I, I got involved and I didn't really stop going until after I, I graduated high school. Um, I was, you know, thoroughly on fire for Jesus and I had accepted Jesus as my savior, I suppose, um, early on, you know, in the first few months. And I was hooked. I thought that I had found God. I thought that I was, you know, uh, saved and the rest was herstory. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So is that fire kind of what led you to Liberty University or did that decision come later? Well, I was raised on a pretty strict diet of American anti-American sentiment. My, my dad was not the biggest fan of the States. And so I didn't really have a desire to go to the States. I was actually first planning on going to Bible college out West. And then I kind of re reconsidered and I was like, well, you know, maybe I should go to, cause I should go to a university, not a small Bible college. And so um, it was between Liberty and university of Toronto ultimately that I was, I was sort of considering. And unfortunately I went to Liberty. Um, but I think for me, it wasn't so much, well, it was in part that I was, you know, like on fire for Jesus and I wanted to go and, and, and get my, my, my foundation in a Christian undergrad, um, and then go on from there and go to a secular school and change the world. Um, but that, was that was so that was definitely a I should say a motivating factor. Um, when I went down to Liberty, I visited a few times before going there. I saw all these Christian young people, and I thought, oh my gosh, this looks amazing! Like, this looks like the place I need to be. Um, but a big, you know, sort of catalyst for what ultimately drove me to, to Liberty specifically was the fact that I knew that they had a conversion therapy program, and I knew this because when I had gone down on those trips, there was after chapel there were these, these advertisements that were on the screens where they played the worship music. 
And one of the one of the advertisements was about uh, this. It, it said something along the lines of like, "Do you struggle with same sex attraction?" And I was like, "Guilty." And I decided that uh, I was so I, I so I, I you know I, I sort of took a mental image of, of of the of the ad and the guy's name who was offering these services. His name was Dane Emrick, and. I I thought about it for a bit and then I you know I asked my friends at who I was you know staying with when I was at Liberty for those weekends those those visits I was like so uh who's this uh, Dane Emmerich guy <laughs> like what's uh what's he about and they told me you know of course that he was the guy known on campus who helped people with uh, uh, with with uh, with folks who were quote unquote struggling with same sex attraction, or also folks with porn addictions, which I love in the evangelical world, this idea of a porn addiction, right? It's like someone looks at porn once a month and thinks they're addicted. But putting that aside, I this is who. Uh, so I, I I decided that um, I was going to do a little more research, uh, and ultimately, you know, I found out more about this guy, Dane Emmerich. And that was really a big reason why I chose to go to Liberty. I, you know, I, I received a scholarship to go there. And so because of that scholarship, I was actually able to financially afford Liberty. Um, but like I say now, in order to, to get a scholarship, you need to be doing scholarship. And the work that I was doing at Liberty University, the quote unquote academic work I was doing at Liberty University wasn't necessarily uh, scholarship, uh, you know, in hindsight. But all this to say... Um, it was certainly a, you know, I, I was, I was hoping to deepen my faith. I was hoping, hoping to uh, surround myself with a, a, a Christian community, and, uh, but you know, uh, a, a big reason why I ultimately chose to go there was, in fact, this conversion therapy program. Wow, that's a that's a very interesting take on it. So, um, so, so the idea of the con the conversion therapy, um being an appeal makes me wonder you know as you're a young adult how how did you relate to your own sexuality and orientation oh i hated myself <laughs> to put it simply wow. uh, yeah. you know i was i was thinking about this this recently and like what ultimately drove me to christianity specifically other than the fact that of course i had you know a, a christian uh, a, a vague christian background um you know, if you think about Christian theology, Christian theology is a shame-based theology. It, it, it necessitates that believers uh, understand themselves as uh, sinful, that they are, you know, uh, are, 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 what's the word, um, guilty before God. And because of that, you know, God is good. And because God is good and, and gave us the free gift of Jesus that we're saved. But we, as or folks who identify as Christians, um, need to have a, a strong sense of shame uh, and guilt in order to believe what they are told to believe. And I think that my internalized homophobia, like my hatred for myself, um, really mapped on strongly to, to Christian theology, right? Like Christian theology tells you you have to like essentially hate yourself, uh, that you're not good, that you're gross, that you're dirty. Um, and of course, being queer uh, that was something that both within the church and also outside of the church, I was taught from a young age that I was gross, that I was dirty, that I was disgusting. And so, um, or I should say queers were. And of course, I had at the time separated myself from queers. I was like, I'm not queer. I'm just struggling with same-sex attraction. Um, and I saw, you know, uh, uh, myself as really like a latent heterosexual who was just dabbling <laughs> in, in homosexuality. Right. Um, but I think that for me, like I saw my sexuality as, as gross because I was told it was gross. 
I was told that to be queer is to be, you know, uh, outside of the fold of God, that to be queer, um, you have the risk of getting AIDS and, you know, uh, these people, these queers are dirty. That's what I was taught for a very long time, both explicitly and implicitly. And so when that's your sort of framing of your sexuality or the framing of what you know yourself to be, but don't want yourself to be, you of course try your best to run from it. You try your best to, to, to get around that and find a way to just be like everyone else and to be straight. And a lot of people have asked me in the past, they're like, so did you really think that going to conversion therapy would work? It's like, well, of course, I, of course, of course I thought that it was going to work. Why else would I go? Um, and at the time that I was going at the time before that I was contemplating, go, contemplating going, um, I, I was desperate to, to escape myself. I was desperate to get outside of my, um, sexuality and get around it because I was told that if I were to be a Christian, I could not be queer. So this, this dichotomy that was set up for me forced me to choose because, you know, you can't choose God and sin at the same time. again, within the Christian imagination, emphasis on imagination. Um, And so when the choice is between you and God, you of course choose God, right? Like that's, that's what you've been told you have to choose. And so I, I chose ultimately to, uh, to, to flee my sexuality or run from my sexuality and, and, and and run into the arms of God and, you know, uh, be a straight person or try to be a straight person, which of course uh, didn't work out so well. Yeah, I would assume not. Um, you know, it, I think you brought up a great point in that uh, you have to be ashamed to believe what they believe. And, and in some sense, you're, you are you got to be ashamed of all sexuality. And there's like this very narrow version of sexuality that's acceptable, like this monogamous, married, patriarchal type sexuality is like the only thing that flies, um, mm-hmm. supposedly. Um, but uh, But that's interesting that you... Like, so were you, did you find, I, I, to me, uh, putting myself in your shoes, I feel like there there would probably be some feelings of, um, man, I'm like w- even worse than average. Did you feel anything like that because of your quote unquote struggles with same sex attraction? Oh, yeah. I mean, there was even one time there was this youth group leader. Uh, she and I, she was like in her 30s and I was in high school. <laughs> she used to like tell me a lot of stuff. Um, which looking back is so bizarre um, that she was confiding in a teenager. But um, she, one time, all of her romantic interests seemingly were had turned out to be gay. <laughs> all these guys that she liked in the church or at Bible college or whatever, they all turned out to be gay. Uh, and of course, that probably hurt her <laughs> because she probably thought that it was her fault. And it's like, no, like this isn't about you. But anywho, um, so she one time was telling me about all these guys that she had liked who all turned out to be queer. And as she was, you know, con or, you know, talking about it, she, she made it, she made this comment that being queer, being gay, it's just not like other sins. And I remember sitting there and that was a very clear signal that this is not just like any other sin, that it's not like lying or cheating or, you know, I don't know, doing something else. Um, It was instead something that was worse than other sins, that this was something that, um, although Christians love to claim that all sin is equal, that this was somehow qualitatively different. And I think that the church has made this um, into uh, 
a di- almost like, yeah, again, like a different category of sin. And of course, sexual sin in the church broadly construed uh, is bad. And it's something that apparently, you know, you need to apologize for and you need to be really like contrite about. Um, but homosexuality itself seems to be something that is not just like sexual sin. It's like the step above sexual sin, where it's both sexual sin plus, you know, an even further perversion, uh, which is to say that it's between two, you know, folks of the same sex. And that for me, again, was, you know, incredibly tough to work through and to think through and to live through because you are told that at, you know, you're at your core, because of course, you know, as well as anyone else does that your sexuality is part of who you are. And when you're told that that's gross and that's, that's dirty and that's something that needs to be, you know, eradicated or erased, and you know that that's not really going to happen, but you really hope that it can happen and you have faith that God will make it happen because God's capable of miracles, um, that cruel optimism, that sense that things can change uh, really has, takes a lot of emotional, psychological, spiritual tolls on you. Yeah, um, I, I I honestly can't begin to imagine. Um, uh, that that's just the the psychological torment of all that. Um, uh, it grieves me. Uh, I'm glad you're you're clearly past it in a in a lot of ways. I'm sure it still can be triggering and and hard on some days, but it, it's good to hear that you're able to talk about these things clearly. Um, in general, how do you view faith and spirituality now? Faith and spirituality. Um, I am not a person of faith anymore. I think I'm like pretty Thomas Jefferson about it. Um, that I, I I believe that God created the world and then just walked walked away or did God's own thing. I don't know where God is, and <laughs> I don't know if God knows where God is. Um, I I just I, I at this point cannot believe that there is such thing as a good God in it while living in the world that we live in. Um, I, my main focus in, in, in my studies has been the Holocaust and there's this one author, Elie Bazell, he's this, he's probably the most well-known Holocaust survivor. Um, he's written prolifically about the Holocaust and also about God and the relationship between the two. And in one of his New York times op-eds, he writes to God needs this open letter to God. And he says, God, can we just get to the bottom of this? Can we just like figure things out here? You know, what happened? back then like what what went wrong where were you kind of thing can you just like explain yourself and of course this is a monologue and for me hearing that that model or that 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 example of protest against god that that Vizelle was challenging god was so foreign to me it was such a, 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 a an alien concept that i had never really thought that we as humans could could challenge or 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 again question god and when I read that, I, just, I started thinking to myself, like, yeah, where was God? Or like, what the heck happened? And maybe this was like much later, this realization of mine, like, you know, this question, where was God was, was way too late. Like, why didn't I think of this earlier? <laughs> but for me, maybe I'm a late bloomer. And I started thinking about it. And I remember it was at the same time that I heard someone use the phrase too blessed to be stressed. And it was something in regards to, or like, or like blessed or something like that. It's one of those like hashtags. And it was something in regards to this, this gal, she got like a free Starbucks coffee. And I remember sitting there thinking to myself, you, you're claiming that God blessed you by giving you a free Starbucks coffee. Cause like, you know, within the Christian imagination, the idea of a blessing is something that's an active gift that, that God actively bestows on, uh, bestows on, on, onto people. Um, and when, 
this woman had tweeted this. I thought like, you thought God took time out of God's day to give you a coffee. Meanwhile, like so-and-so down the street is like sitting begging for money. Like what in the world are you claiming? Because if in fact God is giving gifts to some, that means God is actively not giving gifts to others. And again, it's sort of this was the spiral of theological confusion and panic that led me to believe that if in fact there's a good God, that God cannot act here in the world because if God acts at sometimes, but not at other times, God is not a good God that, then. And, you know, I, I maybe there's the fiction that I'm willing to uphold that there is a God and that God just can't act anymore for whatever reason. Um, and if, and that maybe that fiction is exactly that a fiction, but I'm at this point sort of um, much more attracted or convinced by, by that narrative than the fact, than the narrative of, of God, being a good God and, you know, and uh, following through on miracles and, and, and inner or sort of uh, what's the word uh, acting here on earth. And so for me, I don't have a personal faith uh, or s- sort of spirit. I don't have a set of spiritual practices today. I just, it's not something that concerns me. It's not something that I'm interested in, in a lot of ways, but I'm super interested in the beliefs of others. <laughs> and I'm super interested in why people believe what they believe um and that for me has become an academic uh line of inquiry that i i do enjoy talking about these things i do enjoy thinking about these things but certainly not for myself anymore um instead uh i think that these are questions that are important for a lot of people and they need to be talked about about by a lot a lot of people um because they have real world impacts and if we see you know the state of let's take america as an example um you know the the impacts of, of evangelicals and politics Right. Like these these beliefs, although we might not agree with them or believe them, uh, are important to understand and talk about, because if we don't, we don't understand a massive, uh, you know, voting block within, again, the U.S. specifically. Yeah, absolutely. This is a lot of my motivation for talking about it, even having left, you know, is uh, it impacts us sociologically on a massive scale, uh, no matter how small the group one thinks that it is um it is a it's a huge impact that can happen so yes deconstructing why people believe what they believe i think is very important work let's talk if you don't mind we'll talk a little bit more about your conversion therapy experience um so first off for just basic definition conversion therapy is a pseudoscientific practice of attempting to change an individual sexual orientation basically from anything queer to uh, heteronormative. So it could be, you know, from transgender to cisgender, from homosexual to heterosexual, what have you. And, uh, well, I'll, I'll start here. What was, your, what was your experience with conversion therapy at Liberty uh, initially? Um, it was a barrel of monkeys. It was a lot of fun. No, uh, it was not. Uh, I, <laughs> I went to conversion therapy about, oh, goodness, well, but two weeks into school at Liberty, I had this really, really bizarre romantic encounter with one of my spiritual life directors. And at Liberty, spiritual life directors are are, are upperclassmen uh, or upperclass women, but in my case, upperclassmen uh, uh, who oversee spiritual affairs on on the different dorms that you live on. And so I had this really bizarre encounter with this one guy. And he wouldn't talk to me. He refused to talk to me afterwards. He was super, again, ashamed and embarrassed about what had happened. And I also was ashamed and embarrassed, but I was, you know, like in my head at the time, I thought to myself, well, I'm going to go to Liberty 
And I'm going to have fun with Christian guys because I don't want to be a bad witness outside of the church. But of course, at Liberty, everyone's Christian. So I can go have my fun for four years or close to four years. And at the very end, I'll you know go to conversion therapy and then get a wife, whoever she might be, and then go back to Canada, marry her and whatever. That was my big plan. Um, again, my, my, I wanted to be straight, but of course I was, uh, you know, an 18 year old guy, uh, or 18 year old human in general, I should say. Um, and I also wanted to have fun. And so, um, that plan though, was not exactly, um, uh, did, I did not follow through on that plan because what happened with the spiritual life director, um, really threw a, a wrench into things. And because he wouldn't talk to me, I was, you know, emotionally distraught. I was just like, you know, so ripped up that my first romantic encounter uh, resulted in excommunication, like he wouldn't talk to me. So my my plan at Liberty, that sort of like plan to have fun and then, you know, change at the very end and find a wife, that was, that was fast tracked. <laughs> I, I decided that because of what had happened with uh, my spiritual life director that I needed to go and talk to someone because, you know, I wasn't about to go and tell my friends or my family. Um, it wasn't necessarily street cred to be queer at Liberty University. And so I decided that I was going to go and talk to this conversion therapist. So I went and spoke with him or I, I made an email, I should say, to, to go talk to him. It was like an email that was trying to conceal my identity. I didn't want anyone. I didn't want him to know it was me and I didn't want to use the email I applied to the school with. So I used instead a fake email that I had made and it was something like like Texas football fan or something like that. It was just like as far away from me as, as 18 year old Luke as possible, <laughs> like the kid from Toronto who never, uh, never enjoyed or I guess had played a little bit of football, but never really enjoyed it. Um, so anyway, so I make this email. I say, Hey, if I come talk to you, will I get in trouble? He says, no, he says, whatever you say to me, unless you're going to self-harm will be confidential. So I was like, okay, let me go talk to him. So I went and spoke with him. Uh, and we spoke over the span of four years, um, uh, mostly in my first and fourth year, but in my second and third, well, also my second year as well. Um, but you know, to a lesser extent in second and third year, but certainly my freshman and senior years, I was, uh, there a lot. And we uh, would speak uh, in, our, in our meetings. We would go to his office and he would first give me like a very weird uh, big bear hug. Um, and that's also how he, uh, that's how we parted. He would always uh, hug me. And I think looking back, like his goal uh, in hugging me uh, and also when we prayed, putting his hands on me, whether I'm on my knee or on my leg or on my shoulder, I think his goal with touching me and being very tactile was to model good touch, bad touch. Like this is how men can relate to each other in a non-sexual way when it's, you know, physical, weird, weird sort of like, again, uh, attempts to change me in both uh, explicit, in this case, uh, uh, less than explicit ways. But we would go, we would sit down and we would read scripture together. He had given me also a workbook that I had to read. My workbook was called Growth into Manhood, Resuming the Journey by Alan Medinger. Uh, a guy who claims that he was miraculously uh, changed from a from a gay man to a, a heterosexual, um, and we would read uh, scripture. We'd read this book. Uh, we would talk about uh, both, and we would also every week. I would have to give him a an inventory of what I had done that week sexually. So we talked about what he termed victories and slip ups. Victories were moments that I escaped temptation. And he would tell me, uh, you know, like, good job for, for bouncing your eyes. And of course, bouncing your eyes in Christian parlance is the oh. idea of 
<laughs> Chat, tri- you just triggered me so much. <laughs> I'm like, oh man, uh, just like being at a coffee shop. Like it's a it's a very dude culture phrase where uh, it's just like anytime uh, for for me in the context I was in, anytime a, a slightly attractive woman would walk into the coffee shop, he'd be like, hey, bounce your eyes, and it's like, what? And I, I did I hadn't heard that till I went to Bible college, and so like I was like what and then when someone explained it to me i'm like when i was growing up we used to always say like 12 o'clock six o'clock to tell you where the attractive person was not not tell you to look away uh yeah so that's uh man yeah so you you would actually log every time you would bounce your eyes well he would he would ask me like to tell him about the times that i did and so i i don't know if he was not like i don't know what he was writing down or you know i actually don't remember like if he took notes or not um, at this point, but he, he definitely would like, it was just like taking it in all of the stuff that I had done. That was like a, what he called a victory. Um, you know, and he would say like, you know, did you like, I would have to say things like, or I, I was encouraged to tell him moments when, for instance, you know, I was tempted to look at pornography, but instead I went and hung out with a friend, something like that. Um, and so he, uh, also asked me to, to, to describe my, my slip ups, what he called slip ups. And these were moments that I gave into temptation. And he just asked like such detailed questions about my teenage and then early twenties sexual life, like, like porn, if I had kissed someone like, and I told him about the spiritual life director and, you know, he was so curious to know who it was. And I remember that the the name of the spiritual life director he had the same name as his his roommate who was also a spiritual life director and this other spiritual life director worked for Dane and so when I said the name I think he thought it was this other guy who's like an he was a he was a very good looking guy and you could see him almost like perk up <laughs> like he was like super into hearing all the details and it was just like a very he always would you know, he, he just asked like a lot of very detailed personal questions and was like very invested in my teenage and early twenties, like sexual life. Like, again, like, um, because this man who was uh, a self-identified ex-gay, of course he was sitting there like just titillated, loving what he was listening to. Um, but at the same time, you know, telling us that we are telling me that we, that I couldn't be who I was and that this was wrong. Um, and so it's some weird secondhand gratification. I'm only assuming, uh, that, that defined his time listening to me recount what I had done. And so, you know, and then we would also, uh, you know, he would tell me certain things that were good for me, like, you know, how to walk, how to stand, how to play. I should be playing sports. I should be doing things like carpentry and all this kind of stuff. Hold on, specifically carpentry? Well, that's that's actually, it was a, it was a, a quote from the book, the Alan Medinger's book. Wow. I was like, you want me to do woodwork? Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, woodwork uh, is an unfortunate pun there. But yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah, I am. That's that's so, gosh, oh man, I hate it because I can just hear like the, the toxic uh, masculinity and all of it. And yeah, there's like, it, I think it expands beyond just this conversion therapy where there's like just this weird bro culture of like, yeah, if you're uh if you're if you're feeling anything sexual, make sure you just work out more or something. Um and uh yeah, it's it seems especially damaging if you're trying to um do it specifically for uh <laughs> converting someone to a heterosexual lifestyle. Uh very problematic, my goodness. Yeah, no, it was just like, um, <laughs> he was a very, 
Yeah. I mean, like all of the suggestions were wacky, right? Like this idea that if you are to perform and, you know, me playing sports or doing carpentry would definitely be a performance, not a good performance, but a performance. You know, if, if I were to be doing these things that over time, because I'm doing the things of men and what it means to be, you know, uh, and living into what it means to be, you know, masculine, capital M masculine, um, that over time I would habituate this persona, which would then become uh, a rote sort of like routine and that routine or that habituated persona would then just become who I am. And that was the undergirding logic behind all of this, that if I were to do the things of men and live in the world of men, then I would become a man because according to this thinking, I was, you know, a half-baked man that needed a little bit more time in the oven. Um, and the way to, to again, you know, be fixed was to, to do the things that men do. And of course this didn't work. And of course this was, you know, wildly unsuccessful and led to a lot of frustration and anger and self-hatred and, you know, fun things like that anxiety. Cause even, you know, when you're, when you're told you have to perform and you are performing on a daily basis, right? Like you're literally at a school where it's not, uh, you know, it's punishable to be, to, to express your queerness. So when that's the case, you know, you have to perform on a daily basis. You have to try to convince not only yourself, but other people that you're straight. And so that causes a lot of anxiety. You're, you're out there, you know, really, you know, doing your best to, to, to convince people that you're, 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 you're not gay. And, you know, probably I didn't do very well. Probably people knew and could see that I was queer and, you know, uh, for a number of reasons, but nonetheless, you're trying your best to, to, to out, outwit people and and it causes a lot of anxiety. It causes a lot of like sort of distress on a day-to-day like micro, uh, in a, on a micro way, right? Like there's these like moments of crisis where you your hand is a little bit too, uh, what's the word, like fluid or you're, you're, you pronounce, you know, a word a certain way and people look at you and it's just this constant anxiety of trying to approximate the discourse and perform as a quote unquote capital M man. Um, but all of these things worked in concert uh, to really push me further and further into the, clo- into the closet and our me- my meetings with Dane, um, in addition to the fact that he always prayed for me, I never prayed for myself, which I think is quite telling that he was the one interceding on my behalf and I didn't really have a voice in it. Um, all of this, I worked towards me again, staying in the closet and living an incredibly unfulfilling and unfulfilled life for a very long time. Um, and this was, and these were also the enduring fruits, right? All this shame, the guilt, the anxiety, the fear, um, all of this was what I was left with after I, uh, left Liberty. Yeah, I can imagine. So, uh, well, first off, how did, how did you, when did you decide to stop doing these kind of, uh, when did you, I guess, quit conversion therapy, not just necessarily formally, but stop like kind of just shaming yourself all the time for all the feelings you were having? Well, so I left Liberty in 2012. I had graduated uh, in in May of 2012. And I decided when I moved back to, so I moved back to Ontario. I went to McMaster University after I finished at Liberty. And it was there that I was essentially leading a youth group. Like the, the church didn't have a youth pastor and I in some ways stepped up to be the one who led or co-lead uh Friday nights like when they had their youth group and so my my friend and I we were the ones who uh yeah led this youth group essentially and of course in the christian imagination when you're told you can't be queer you have to choose god over being queer 
uh, that part of you is just pushed aside. So for my entire time at, Mc, at McMaster, my entire year in Hamilton, Ontario, um, I was doing my best to just push that part of me aside. Um, and I wasn't going to anything formal. Like there really weren't any uh, formal gatherings or, you know, gay conversion therapy uh, uh like spots or places to go or people to speak with. Um, so it was mostly just me trying to like navigate this by myself in a lot of ways, though. I, my best friend at the time, um, uh, Quinny, he knew about it. Uh, and we talked about it, you know, a decent amount, but nonetheless, uh, it was this year of like really, um, a lot of anguish. Like it was something, it was a time when I was left with the tools that Liberty gave me, of course, the tools that did not work. Um, and I was, you know, trying this on my own, trying to live, you know, by myself, you know, this, this, this closet, or I was trying to, how do I say there was a, a, this year I was again, still in the closet, but I didn't really have anything, anyone other than my best friend to talk to about it. And even with talking to my best friend about it, of course, that wasn't helping in, in a lot of ways because there was nothing that he could do. <laughs> There's nothing that he's able to do to, to make me, you know, become straight. And so I think that it was just a year of, of, of a lot of, again, anguish, but also a lot of questions. And because of all the questions I was, you know, thinking through and trying to work through, I decided that I wanted to go to divinity school. And so I applied to a number of divinity schools. Um, and then I eventually went to Vanderbilt divinity and it was there that I began to really think through these things. I think before it was more so this like side project of just like at night thinking about how awful it was that I was queer this was a different context where I was actually in class thinking about these questions, uh, but not so much from a, a homophobic perspective, um, like the, you know, like how I'd been seeing these questions and thinking through these questions up until that point. Um, but instead from an affirming and open uh, perspective and Vanderbilt is a very liberal uh, divinity school. It's phenomenal. It changed my life. But, you know, I think that for me, uh, I didn't have conversion therapy after I left Liberty. I didn't go through anything like that. Um, but instead I, I went, I sort of dove into academia as a way to think through and feel through and live through uh, a lot of the, the BS that I had been taught. And it was through my studies that I was able to begin uh, emancipating myself from this uh, really restrictive and restricting theology. Well, praise be God that you did. Um, <laughs> I'm very, very glad that you were able to have an outlet to, to sort through the BS. Wow. Okay. So, so l let me ask this. Um, you know, conservative Christians have tried to argue that if people or, or if the people or the parents of the child are consenting to the therapy, then it's within religious freedom to practice it. Um, how would you respond to someone who feels that way? Wow. <laughs> I, 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 I truly do wonder like how I would respond in the actual moment, but, um, from this, from, from the, where I'm sitting today, uh, I would say first and foremost, abuse should never be an option. Um, conversion therapy has, as most people are aware, literally never worked, right? There's never been a time when conversion therapy has worked. So the efficacy rate in and of itself uh, is abysmal. And to put something, to put someone through a practice that has literally never worked, but has been proven to cause a number of psychological and emotional issues, including uh, anxiety, including depression, including um, uh, suicidal ideation, 
Um, if those are the consequences or those are the, the, the fruits or the, the byproducts of this, this quote unquote therapy, then you have to wonder how good is this therapy, right? So if it's never worked, but instead is only adverse consequences, um, that in and of itself should be, should be a signal that this is not something that a parent should pursue. Second of all, conversion therapy, according to a number of, of estimations, is torture, right? And so like, I'm not saying that all conversion therapy experiences are torture, but there have been a number of documented cases that um, are classified as torture. So for a parent, particularly a loving parent, to put children through such um, uh, ineffective, harmful, and literally tortuous, torturous uh, pr uh, practices is, I would call, you know, bad parenting. Um, so there's definitely that. Uh, these are like the maybe the three main reasons that it doesn't work, that it's harmful, and that it ultimately can be identified as torture. Um, those would probably be where I would start <laughs> with such a parent. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I I have referred to conversion therapy as torture before, and and I I really can't see it another way. Um, I think it's it's what the data bores out, and in some sense, it's what common sense tells you. Um, because in general, therapy therapeutic practices are for one a person to explore their own feelings that's not what conversion therapy is in fact it seems to be almost the opposite yeah it's and it's funny too with like what you're saying about like therapy being uh something where you you work out your feelings whereas this one it's like you're told you're told what to believe and you're told what to do and you're told what to think whereas therapy is sort of the inverse and what i always say about therapy or conversion therapy specifically i should say um i always say that you should never have to go to therapy after going to therapy like that doesn't seem to be all that um uh, that doesn't seem to make much sense. <laughs> no, it, it truly doesn't. And um, yeah, so it, and it's it's very hard to get that through. Um, here's here's another thing I just wanted to talk touch on briefly. You know, there's different forms of conversion therapy, um, but all of them kind of use either psychological, physical, or spiritual uh, interventions. So. Mm -hmm. Con conversion therapy was especially brutal decades ago. I mean, they there were most often using shock therapy techniques. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, I'll, there's a content warning at the beginning of this episode. And if you don't want to hear this, feel free to fast forward 30 seconds. But they used to, like, shock people in the mouth so that there wouldn't be burn marks on their arms. Um, and so, like, this is some pretty intense, horrifying things that were going on. Um, now, granted, there were all sorts of bad practices in therapy in general, but it was especially bad in conversion therapy. Another common technique was to hit people on the head with Bibles, um, and which can hurt. Uh, Bibles are pretty heavy. Um, yeah. And so this still does happen, uh, including internationally, but it's definitely less common. Uh, more common is kind of like the conversion therapy experience you were describing, where it's more psychological. Um, but are these less violent versions of conversion? conversion therapy any less harmful do you think so i'm always wary to make like a, a hierarchy of suffering or say like i suffered more i suffered less kind of thing but at the end of the day like i do know that my experience conversion therapy which did not include shock therapy did not include any sort of like physically violent um uh, elements there were of course like physical elements in the sense of again like touching and like how to stand how to sit how to walk all this kind of stuff um, but, and I mean like violent in the sense of like, you know, hurting someone or hurting me that didn't happen to me. Um, 
but and I and I and I don't claim to to say that my experience was as bad as some of my other you know friends' experiences. So in one breath I say I don't want to make this hierarchy. In other ways I'm like, but mine wasn't as bad. <laughs> but what I will say is that regardless of like the level of intensity or severity, and I do have friends who up until recently, uh, you know, their experience in conversion therapy in the early 2000s included shock therapy. Like this is something that yes, it was more pre- prevalent before, but it is something that still happens. And I do know people who have experienced this. Um, and I know someone who had to, to reenact, uh, his, his rape, uh, you know, so there are like really, really violent, uh, and disgusting and abusive practices that still endure. Um, but in, in regards to your question of, you know, is the, is this still something that is psychologically damaging? Yes, absolutely. Right. Like, um, for the people who didn't go through anything with the physical violent, physically violent element. Um, these are people who I know a number of these folks and I know the issues that they have to deal with. I know, um, you know, the, the psychological and the, the, the traumatic, uh, issues that they have to endure today. Um, and so, you know, when these folks have PTSD, when these folks have clinical depression, when these folks have clinical anxiety and, you know, the list goes on and these folks have, in some cases, attempted, uh, you know, to complete suicide. With all of this being said, I think it's, it's uh, what else can we say but the fact that it's, this is damaging, that this is violent, that this is uh, traumatic, that this is abusive. And so, yes, conversion therapy has changed over the years. And yes, uh, there is less of a, a, a physically violent uh, component. But nonetheless, this is something that really does cause lasting damage. I couldn't agree more. And yes, you never want to create a hierarchy of suffering because we can't all experience everyone's suffering and know the complete impact that it has. But one thing that the data certainly bears out is that the the psychological effects, uh, regardless of the amount of violence, tends to be very similar effects, like you were saying, with PTS and with... Um, yeah, just just anxiety and 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 uh, suicidal ideation and depression. Um, and this is real stuff, you know. For for I think a lot of Christians, it's that world out there that only the like you know few among us will ever even have to deal with. But these practices are very very common. Um, and in fact, only twenty states in in the U.S. have banned conversion therapy and they've only banned it for minors uh which i think needs to be talked about more and uh and you know no states disallow it for adults um and in my worldview this is basically allowing legal torture so um it's but to change laws you have to change minds first um so so this is a a question i have for you which which do you think is a better approach if there is such a thing as a good approach to this um is it trying to convince people that there's nothing wrong with being queer or focusing on how bad conversion therapy can be? Because, you know, there's there's an element of like, we just got to change minds to get this illegalized um, <laughs> that just for harm reduction's sake. So is it better to just try to change the entire worldview where it's like, hey, there's nothing wrong with being queer. It's normal. Uh, it's not like this scary disease thing. Or should we just really focus on, hey, conver- conversion therapy is really bad. It needs to be illegal. I think it's a both and um, moment. I think that there are ways that we can 
show the world that being gay is not wrong or bad. And I think that's, of course, a, a slower process. It's something that takes a long time. I mean, even if you think about like for the number of queers who uh, were homophobic because of their, you know, the theology they were taught, like even for queers themselves, it takes a long time to undo that way of thinking. And maybe it's a whole lifelong process. I don't know. Um, but it certainly was for me a very difficult process for a very long time that I thought that I was, I myself was, was, uh, you know, uh, dirty because I was queer and it's like, it's of course going to take in some cases a lot more, uh, work for people who aren't queer to, to, to give up or to, uh, divorce themselves from those beliefs. And, you know, I think that a big part of that is sharing stories. I think a big part of that is, you know, uh, when you know someone personally who's gay or queer or a lesbian or, you know, trans, that that changes your mind too in a lot of ways. Like I can think of, you know, some of my family members who uh, didn't really change their minds about uh, homosexuality until I came out. And I think that that's a very difficult process. It's oftentimes uh, something that involves uh theology and like actually having a, a strong grasp on theology. Again, this is why I think understanding theology is so important. Um, but it's not easy and it's something that you can't really tell anyone to do, uh, of course, which again makes uh, it not an easy task. But the other part with with uh, banning conversion therapy, uh, or pardon me, of, of convincing people of the harms of conversion therapy, again, this is also has to do with telling stories. I um, mean, that's why I tell my story. That's why I share, you know, um, some details that I don't necessarily love to talk about, but I think that are, they're important to talk about. Um, and this is something that I think is a little bit easier, especially since there's peer-reviewed research. But of course, a lot of folks within evangelical communities don't necessarily uh, esteem academic work highly, and they don't think of it as something that really has any bearing on their life, that it's just a bunch of liberals out there, you know, uh, in an echo chamber, which in some ways uh, can be true. I think that actually that's something that needs to be talked about more is how to disseminate research and, and talk about these ideas outside of the academy. But um, I think a lot of times conservative evangelicals are not really willing to listen to such research. However, um, I think that when their son is gay, when their their nephew is gay, uh, when their neighbor is a lesbian, when, you know, uh, someone in their family is trans, this is something that can change, you know, minds too. And I think What's so important here for all of this is amplifying uh, voices of queer people and also amplifying the voices of, of, of survivors of conversion therapy in order just for more people to be aware of this. So a lot of people think this isn't even something that happens anymore. Um, a lot of people think this is something that has been outlawed for a long time. But, you know, uh, you know, most recently, France and Canada banned conversion therapy nationwide for uh, in Canada. Uh, you know, I'm super proud to say that we have banned it where adults cannot uh uh, undergo conversion therapy that we say like, you know, abuse and torture should never be consented to. And there's no uh, reason why any cons uh, consenting adult would agree to this other than hatred of the queer community, hatred of the self. Um, but in the States, I think that it's, we have to talk about both, uh, you know, queer representation, making, you know, being queer more mainstream in the sense of like actually having representation in media and, you know, all this kind of stuff, which is, you know, blah, blah, blah. We know this. Um, but on top of that, the other thing is, is also talking about the harms of conversion therapy and thinking about it from like a, a health perspective. Um, and I think that's even more broadly, we have to think about, uh, you know, uh, purity culture and the effects of purity culture more, you know, in general, um, because conversion therapy is certainly a part of that uh, system. And we have to think about the health consequences of purity culture and where that leads people.
Um, but all this to say, I think it's both and. I certainly do too. Um, you definitely have to, you know, walk and chew gum at the same time when you're when you're talking about these issues a lot, um, because you don't want to either or it. Um, that question is only a curiosity of mine because I do know there's Christians who are, I would pretty bigoted, but would say they're against conversion therapy. Um, and so, like, there's a part of me that's like, man, can I activate that part of them? Can I like? investigate more into that you know there, there's almost like a like a a drive to try to just mitigate harm as much as possible as quickly as possible but i think you're right i think it, a lot of these processes are super slow and the other point that you brought up which i think is is uh very observable is uh people are just not always exposed <laughs> to um like people who are different than their uh you know subculture you know, evangelicalism, basically, it, it creates a very narrow view of what life is and what people are. And so if you're, you know, in a part of the the world where you only see people who are like you, um, it's pretty easy to, to view the others as uh, something that is other. Um, but you're right. Usually when it happens in the family, even if they stay bigoted or um, don't necessarily become wholly accepting people, their views tend to change at least somewhat. Um, mm-hmm. And again, you know, we're forward is forward, the, no matter the pace. So like I, I, it's a lot to, you know, I was bigoted for a long time and I'm sure you would say you were too, you know, <laughs> like there were a lot of um, really uh, homophobic feelings I had for a long time and it mm-hmm. did take more exposure and rethinking and listening more to get where I am now. And I'm sure I still have tendencies from my, you know, upbringing that I'm still working through to, to get out of my, you know, neuropaths. But yeah, so, so thank you for sharing all that. But yeah, it's a slow process and it can feel very defeating, but I agree with you. Stories have to keep being shared and, and keep being amplified. Yes, sir. Um, so let's talk about some special issues with the, the evangelicals you and I love so much. Um, it's, it's worth noting that, um, conversion therapies kind of fallen by the wayside even in their circles they don't like using that term they like using the term reparative therapy or or other ideas that sound like that uh because they don't want to be discredited um but i find it interesting that both those words are used right conversion and reparative um because that's quite linguistically evangelical (laughs) um they because they think all people need to be converted or repaired to their system so uh, are evangelicals able to see anyone outside their system as having value? It's one of those things where they say the the one sort of like recurring mantra here is that like they're only able to love the world because God loved them or like they're only able to love like people because God loved them. And it's like, really, like you weren't capable of loving people <laughs> like you had to have like. God love you first, or at least be alerted to like the idea that God loved you before you could love others. Like what in the world sort of like tomfoolery is that? Um, But I don't, I don't think that evangelicals really see people as people in a lot of senses. They see them as opportunities to save souls. They see them as souls that they're like, I just want this soul to be secured in, in, in heaven or like that, you know, that this person knows Jesus and past that, I don't really want to know anything about them. I don't really care to make their lives here and now all that much better. Um, I just want to know or be- or believe that they're going to be in heaven. Like I think that they see them as a mission opportunity, as a as a as like a as a chance to to 
to put a jewel on their crown or at least just to like even like a more altruistic versions like to to put them in heaven or to secure their place in heaven but past that they don't care about those people and this can be seen you know like so often with people who leave the church that people leave the church and those in the church don't go back out to find them they don't say like hey come back where are you going they're just like oh they're gone like I guess we shouldn't talk to them anymore. I guess we shouldn't make an effort with them anymore. And this happens so often. Like when I left the church, I had so few friends, like so few friends. I can count them on one hand, actually reach out to me and express any concern. Of course, like I wasn't concerned. Like I was like, no, I'm done with the church. I don't, I don't need this anymore. I don't want this anymore. But they were, there were so few people who actually in any way reached out. And I find that so telling. I find that so illustrative of how little people in the church actually care for people. Um, They care about each other. They care for themselves. They are invested in um, reinforcing the boundaries between outside and inside. And if anyone does leave that system, then that person, well, they did their best. And it just shows how thin and how unsubstantial these relationships that they have with people outside of the church really are. Um, Or even within the church, right? Like that it took that person saying, Hey, I don't want to be a Christian anymore to break up the friendship. Right. Because then a lot of times it's the, the person who's leaving the church isn't necessarily trying to say like, Hey, I don't want to be your friend. Um, And, but when the people who are in the church see that people are leaving, they don't care. They don't give two hoots about these people and they don't um, do anything to, again, uh, quote unquote, retrieve them back to God or like, you know, bring them back to the, to God or what they think to be the right side. Um, which again, I just think that, you know, we outside of the church, those who are not Christians, those who are not evangelical, um, we're not really seen as flesh and blood humans. We're seen as like eternal opportunities. And when that's the case, you know, people who are outside the church, of course, they don't want to be a part of that. Of course, they don't want to be in, in, in community with people like that. Um, because it just is not appealing. And it's like when my personhood is not recognized for what it is, like, I don't want to be a part of that. When I am seen as Luke, but not as the, as gay, like I'm, I'm every, they, they, you know, they, they turn a blind eye to my gay side or, 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 or as if there's a side that's gay, it's all gay. But like, you know, um, they, they don't, they kind of overlook that and then look at the rest of me. It's like, no, I don't want that then. I don't want you to, you know, bifurcate or divorce my sexuality from who I am because that's who I am. It's like if I went up to a woman and said, hey, I love you. I just don't love that you're a woman. So I'm going to overlook that. The woman would say, what? Like, I'm a woman. Like, how can you, like, look at me but not see my womanhood? It doesn't make sense. It's the impossible bifurcation of, like, yeah, the the love the sinner, hate the sin thing um, that really doesn't make any sense because it's one thing to be friends with someone you disagree with um, to be able to forgive someone for like uh, a, an infraction they, they committed either to you or to someone else and still be their friend. It's quite another thing to say. I love an idea. I love the ideal of what I think you could be. That's not really love. That's not, that's not anything that's appealing to me. I couldn't agree with you more on all of this. I, I'm, I'm getting a little emotional just because of how much I agree with you. Well, it's just you can't compartmentalize someone and expect them to be okay with that. And like you're saying, like I can forgive someone, but for me, when I came out, there was nothing to forgive, right? There, there's no, there's no trespass. There's no um, sin that I committed against anyone. 
And then, you know, like when you disagree with someone, there's a difference between disagreeing, you know, on, on a matter of opinion versus disagreeing with who that person is on a fundamental level, right? Again, it's like saying, I disagree with you on being a woman. I disagree with you on being, you know, uh, like Irish. I, what does that mean? Like, you can't disagree with that. That is simply who that person is. Um, and I find it um, to be, you know, and then of course, the, a lot of folks will gaslight you and and, and try to <laughs> say that's not the case that they still love you that you know you should have been reaching out too and it's like i i did <laughs> like I, I oftentimes reached out to, anyway i i'm getting more into like anecdotal whatever but well no it's true i'll 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 add to the anecdote like when i left i definitely felt that like i was i was on it now granted people would check up on me but you know what the checkup's like the checkup isn't right. what are you thinking how do you feel do you need any help and again, you know, there were a few people who were kind to me. I don't want them to feel like they, they weren't being kind. Um, they were, and I appreciate that. But there were, most people, I, I feel like a ghost, you know. Um, I'm actually, it's a little nerve-wracking having a podcast that I've kind of learned that there's lurkers who listen to me who will not approach me when they have all the means to approach me, but they they still listen to my podcast. I hope it's out of a curiosity. I hope it's out of a a willingness to to explore other ideas but sometimes i'm afraid that um it's just uh temperature taking of my spiritual worth mm-hmm. and uh yeah that's not something i want to be a part of where um no matter how subtle it's just it's just constantly judging people uh next to an impossible standard mm-hmm. and you know what i think that a lot of even you're talking about you're like i'm scared of this and uh you know them listening I think, to be honest, that these folks, and especially if they were honest with themselves, that they are scared by folks who walk out of the church, who leave the church, because it's a threat to this this system of once saved, always saved, this, you know, Calvinist doctrine, that they are scared that it, it that if that's possible for so-and-so, if that's possible for Luke, the guy who was like on fire for Christ for so long, if that's possible for him, that's possible for me. And so it throws into confusion the absoluteness of, of their salvation. And it makes them nervous, I think, in a lot of ways, because they're like, wait, what happened here? How did this happen? And if it happened to him, it could happen to me. And I think that it really causes a lot of fear and a lot of anxiety in a lot of evangelicals. Yeah, I mean, they're conditioned to be afraid of that, right? Uh, I was afraid. Oh, my gosh, I was afraid. Um, You know, uh, now, granted, I kind of had it up to here by the time I did leave. It was like a, you know, a soda bottle that had been shaken. So it's not like I uh, spent too much time considering whether I should leave or not when I finally did. Um, But I was scared to see how the reactions would be. And uh, you're right. It was almost like the silence was the most deafening part. I was like, oh, wow, these people really don't care. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, it's it's quite interesting. Um, you know, bigotry uh, can manifest itself in many different ways. Um, but what frightens me is how like systematic evangelicals can be in their process of hatred. Mm-hmm. So they can breed hate, not just show it. That's the scary part to me. Um do you find yourself to be less hateful now that you're not an evangelical? <laughs> Maybe my hate has been redirected. Um, uh, would I say I'm less hateful? 
you know, I did have a, I had a high school teacher. I, I, I'm that really cool person who apparently <laughs> I'm super cool. I, I hang out with my high school teachers. Um, no, but I actually like, I, I've kept in contact with a number of my high school teachers who are all just phenomenal people. Um, and I really have like utmost respect for them. And, um, one time I actually was just passing through uh, a grocery store and I bumped into one of my old teachers and this is one of who I, I don't <laughs> hang out with, but, um, I bumped into one of my teachers and we were chatting and he was like, and it came out that I was no longer religious. And he said, Luke, but one thing I can say about you is that even when you were being an ass, you were a sweet ass. <laughs> I was like, thanks, wow. Stephen. I appreciate that. Mr. Way, Stephen Way. Um, but he, but I think that to his point, like I, I think because I wasn't raised in the church, I didn't have as much sort of like ingrained vitriol for like everyone and everything. Um, I was friends with everyone who was different. Like I was the kid at the party who was like the, so like I was like sober and like helping my drunk friends and like, you know, I wasn't necessarily the kid who was, you know, uh, I don't know, uh, saying I wouldn't hang out with you because of X, Y, and Z. Um, even one time I had one friend, he got super drunk at a party and all my friends like left him and he was in the park. We were, we were, in, a, we were in, a, in a park. And I was like, hey, you're coming with me. So he came home with me and he like threw up all over the subway. <laughs> and then we went back to my place, put him in bed. And then the next morning was church. So I went to church in the morning without him. And then halfway through the surface, I was like, what am I doing? Like my friend's sitting in like my, or laying in my bed, like sick. And so I left church and I went back to my house and I was walking up the stairs and I heard my dad who was in the bathtub at the time. And he was like, Luke, are you okay? Cause in my bedroom, my friend was barfing. <laughs> and so I was like, dad, I'm fine. That's just my friend. He's he, uh, just, uh, he didn't have a good night anyway. So like all that to say is I wasn't really the, the one out there who was like, you know, protesting abortion clinics. I was more so the one who was trying to like hang out with just everyone and be pals. Um, but nonetheless, like there was an undergirding or like motivating like resentment towards others um, in some senses, right? Where I thought like, you know, I used to think like feminists, they were so bad because they were out there like preaching some sort of like anti-gospel gospel. Um, and so I think that um, in some ways I wasn't really fully a part of that system in that sense. Um, in other ways, I absolutely was like, I was completely invested in so many ways in evangelicalism and the theology that was being espoused and the culture surrounding evangelicals. But, um, I would say that after, um, evangelicalism, I don't know, was I, am I, am I less hateful? I don't know. What do you think? What about you? <laughs> yeah, I, I say I am, but, but I, I actually, I think you brought up a great point because I can also relate to kind of being the one who I was like. You know, I was writing in our in our academic journal at school like, hey, you know, my trans best friend isn't doing anything explicitly against scripture. And then people are like, how could you say that? Um, and so, like, there was always a hint of me that was like, um, you know, not I. Yeah, I would never, never protest at, you know, Planned Parenthood. Like, that was definitely not something that was ever interesting to me. Um, and I thought in a lot of ways I was fighting bigotry within Christianity while I was in it. Like I, w I would point to people. I, w I did say I'm a Christian feminist. You know, I did say all those things. Um, but for me, where I land on that question is I'm like, yeah. And I trust me, I still get frustrated uh, most of all by evangelicals. Right. But what I've found is 
my tendency to look at people for themselves as people instead of how do they relate to God or how do they relate to my faith or, um, you know, how should I approach this person about Jesus? Like those questions bred hate in me, whether I was realizing it or not. Um, because yeah. I saw, I, I just saw people like you were saying, saying earlier, I did not see people for people. Um, I didn't even see myself for being a person, right? I mean, I had a lot of self-hatred when I was when I was in evangelicalism. Um, and you know, hate starts at home. If you hate yourself, odds are it's going to be kind of hard to to not hate other people sometimes. Um, mm-hmm. you just project it out so much. So I would say yes, uh, but certainly with the caveat that I'm still a human who <laughs> struggles, and I, you know, I have to work really hard to see the humanity in uh in people of faith specifically um because of kind of my religious trauma like it's something i have to work on to not kind of stoop to the level and and other people who have a different faith than me and remember who i was you know and have that kind of empathy but it can be tough to do i think i think you're absolutely right this idea of self-hatred that's something that i don't have anymore um i was talking you know uh recently about how i used to just <laughs> I, you know, uh, believed that I, at my core, was bad. There's even that verse in Isaiah that says, you know, your righteousness before God is like filthy rags, right? And that ultimately, this is, you know, filthy rags back in, you know, the time in which Isaiah was written was, you know, another way of saying a used tampon. And so, like, your goodness, your, what you do that is you believe to be good is like a used tampon before God. And so, I thought and I was told I had to think that what I did and who I am was disgusting. And again, that's being queer and sort of the homophobia, internalized homophobia mapped on really strongly and really easily to that 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 shame-based theology. But I definitely thought I was gross. I definitely thought that I was, you know, disgusting. And now I I think there are parts of me that need to be changed. There's no doubt. Like I have parts that, you know, that I need to improve and not be, you know, and to be better. But I don't hate myself. Um, you know, like I, I, I'm not sitting here like really like harping on all the bad things about myself. I just know that there are things that need to be changed, of course, but that's about it. Um, and you're absolutely right. It's the self-hatred that I think really, um, that's, that I resonate with that. Yeah. Um, it's, it, yeah, the, I, I still struggle to, I always tell people, I'm like, I, I struggle to love myself. I'm closer to accepting myself, but I do not hate myself anymore. Um, and like that was the that was just what evangelicalism was for me in a lot of ways was just hating myself um and and even or being apathetic like those were my two options my two options were uh oh i i'm i'm communing with god so now i hate myself or i'm just going to be an apathetic person and quote unquote sin all over the place and not give a crap and that was the darkest side. Um, and I think, it, you know, sometimes people are like, how can Christians be such hypocrites? Because it's exhausting to try to live <laughs> to, up to an impossible standard. And it does make them act out in horrible, abusive ways um, because of all that, that pent up inability to authentically explore themselves. Um, it certainly happened to me. Um, and I'm very glad I'm out. Um, <laughs> and, and I don't think I'd be a be be who i am without it um yeah i I, and i think the the reason um that evangelicals are so fixated on these standards uh especially 
standards like heteronormative patriarchal ideals Mm -hmm. is it makes groups more monolithic and easier to control. So if you can control just the man of the house in that system, then you can control the whole household. And it's a lot easier to manage one person than five or six. Um, so so what do you think? Am I seeing too many patterns there? Or or is there something kind of cultish in how that bigotry plays out? No, the idea that evangelical necessitates a monolithic identity and groupthink is absolutely spot on. Um, I think about the idea of how diversity within evangelicalism is not something to be celebrated. You know, when you have someone who, uh, again, like sexual diversity, gender diversity, racial diversity, like how many churches are actually racially diverse and those that are, are oftentimes whitewashed. It's, it's, you know, sort of they, there's this whiteness that bleeds into everything that is, um, championed and seen as godly because anything that's not is different and anything that's different is scary. Um, and, you know, evangelicalism has an answer for everything according to their, in, you know, in their own estimation, right? That good, evil, right, wrong, of the devil, of the enemy, everything is so black and white that, you know, difference uh, troubles some of these dichotomies or these binaries. And evangelicalism really reinforces these and pushes for these um, because it makes the world easy, right? Like it makes the world simple. If you can have the answer to everything, if knowledge is a way of controlling things or, you know, your perception of reality is a way of controlling things and saying this fits in here, this doesn't fit in here. And if anything is outside of this, then we don't want this and this is wrong. Um, it makes the world really easy to understand and controllable. Um it makes it also really safe and secure that when you have the answers to everything, you know where everything goes. Um, that is, it makes it's it's comforting. Like you feel good when you're able to um, sort of categorize everything and keep everything in order, quote unquote. Um, but I think that the, I think those are a few of the reasons why evangelicals are so insistent upon, you know. Uh, these norms and these, these Christian culture norms. Um, because again, it makes it easy. It makes it orderly. It makes it controllable and it makes it com- comfortable, safe and secure. Yeah. The leaders and the followers almost get two different things out of it. I think um, in the way, like I, I relate to so much of how you just answered that because the leaders, it's easier to control, but the followers, like you're saying, they get, there's a level of comfort there, right? It is so much easier to grieve death if you're just like, oh, well, Jesus has this perfect standard that he's analyzing everyone's death. And if the person was uh, saved, then I'll see them again. And if not, it's justified. Like if you have that mentality, death is somewhat easier to cope with, although sometimes it becomes rather apparent that uh, the messaging of evangelicalism is not enough to make you feel satisfied when the death of a loved one happens there there's you know elements of yeah like romance you know relationships are hard right so if someone's going to give you a grid that like hey let me make a relationship easy for you you don't have sex till you get married you have a bunch of kids and if you keep on the straight and narrow the church will help you out financially and give you free babysitting once a week you know um (laughs) Like there's some practicality and some comfort in simplifying life, and I and as someone who is a class classic overthinker, 
that is really appealing to someone like me <laughs> to just say, can I just stop thinking and do all of this? That that sounds really appealing. And I don't mean this to bel- belittle anyone who who goes for it. I actually mean it in all sincerity. There, in, in as chaotic as our lives can be, I understand the appeal of evangelicalism. And I think you're right. There is that level of simplicity where you don't have to think. You don't have to do the quote-unquote hard work um, of of thinking <laughs> like I think that it yeah it's it it allows people to say oh my pastor who I trust and respect he's done the thinking for me so since I trust and respect him I'm just going to trust and respect his opinion on xyz and everything and it takes away the responsibility it takes away the um the difficulty the level of difficulty of thinking through honestly, in a lot of cases, like very basic questions. Um, and it's just an appeal to authority that gets them off the hook of having to do any sort of critical work. Yeah. And um, yeah, as simple as it may seem, eventually the system will break apart um, and usually not in very pretty ways. Um, it usually can get really ugly when 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 you've trusted this system and the system betrays you, um, it can be it can be horrifying to watch it play out, um, which it, which can be what what makes it so dangerous. And that's why, in general, you know, I call Christianity a cult, but I'm especially critical of cult leaders, not so much cult followers, because I can see most cult followers, in my estimation, seem to be more victims of manipulation than anything. Whereas cult leaders, I think have the cognitive ability to understand what they are doing and continue to do it. Now, granted, there's certainly self-sustaining elements. Cult leaders themselves have often been victims of terrible rhetoric and terrible conditioning. But in general, I think they need to be critiqued hard because this causes a lot of damage. Um, just And not even just contained within the cult, but outside the cult. This causes a lot of damage for people, just like we're talking about with conversion therapy. I mean, what a convoluted way... I mean, when you when you really break it down, what a crazy thing that conversion therapy even exists. It's insane. It's a it's a crazy thing. And yet in the U.S., not only is it legal for adults everywhere, but in most states, it's legal to put your children through something like that. And it's somehow seen as good. I mean, this is this is quite a quite a dangerous thing, in my estimation. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why when people come out of evangelicalism, this movement, which has been called exvangelicalism. I think that there's a reason why we're so impassioned. There's a reason why we are so committed to exposing the church because we want the world and the church within, you know, with those within evangelicalism, we want both to see what this system does. The amount of damage that evangelicalism has wreaked on, you know, us, Canada, the world um, is, is unbelievable it's it's you know again if you talk about purity culture if you talk about conversion therapy you talk about just the very basics like we've been pointing to throughout this the the shame-based theology all of this has led to so many consequences has led to so many um societal issues um you know like this like weird understanding of sex and gender that has become so strict and narrow that anyone outside of what it means to be a straight you know uh well white man is considered other and deviant and scary this is something that has that was started with you know 
the teachings of Paul, well, maybe even Jesus, um, and be and then was disseminated outward um, to the point now where we have like a very weird culture around sex and gender. Um, and that's just part of it, right? Like th- those are just some of the issues. And so I think that when we talk about ex-evangelicals, we talk about people who are leaving the church, um, we have to understand why they're so passionate about why their the, the reasons for leaving because again they want to see that other people aren't affected the way that we've been affected absolutely and and just to clarify on that you know a lot of people might want to reduce the experiences of people who have left the church as oh they were just hurt by the church and so now they're sort of lashing out or obsessed with it because of the trauma they endured so that somehow invalidates the points um for me i don't really care anymore Right. Like I'm I'm not and I and it seems like from you it's not like, you know, there's obviously effects and I'll acknowledge my biases and my trauma. But really I'm more concerned with what the system is doing currently. And uh, you know, a lot of people like to talk about how well evangelicalism is on the decline and I'm like, yeah, I'm sure in 10 years they won't even call it evangelicalism. Uh but they'll still be around if if no efforts are made to actually change some of the structure. Um and that's why it is important and why I'm very grateful that you were willing to come on and share your story as hard and as hard as it is to to hear, you know, um, but important as it is to hear. So so thank you for doing so. Of course. Thank you so much for having me on. I appreciate it. Yeah. Uh, before we get off, is there anything you want to promote? Well, uh, if anyone wants to follow me on social media, uh, I'm on Instagram at Luke Slam Dunk Wilson. And then on Twitter, I'm at Wilson underscore f as in frederick w and those are the two main spots you can find me awesome uh i hope they do this has been an awesome conversation thank you so much and thank you listener for stopping by i'll talk to you all soon if you wish to learn more about what's going on in my life or wish to purchase my book go to the cult of If you'd like to support this podcast, please continue to listen, follow, share, and consider subscribing for additional content. For only five bucks a month, you'll have access to two additional shows, Parsing Propaganda, where I review and critique Christian content, and Art, where we try some amateur religious trauma therapy. Every subscriber becomes a part of something bigger than this podcast as we endeavor to hold churches accountable, speak the truth boldly, and most importantly, love others despite our pain. Thank you for listening, and remember to keep love in your life, hope in your heart, and searching in your soul.